just a reminder, here at That's So Chronic, we are dedicated to sharing personal stories. We are not advocating any type of treatment, therapy, procedure or intervention. Everyone is unique, so please seek professional medical advice before making any decisions for yourself or for others. Welcome to That's So Chronic, the podcast where I, Jess Bryan, interview some incredible people from around the world that are thriving and sometimes only just surviving with chronic illnesses, life-changing injuries and potentially disastrous diagnoses. Today's episode is with Dr. Kara Wada and we're discussing her diagnosis of Sjogren's. In this episode, Kara shares her diagnosis story as well as the symptoms that, with hindsight, are also pieces of the Sjogren's puzzle. She explains what Sjogren's is, her symptoms and how she manages them. This leads us nicely into chatting more about her work as an allergist, immunologist and lifestyle medicine physician, as well as what become immune confident means to her. Oh, and she also gives me all of the details about Dr. America, a pageant for doctors. This, as well as Sjogren's actually, was something that I didn't know a lot about, so I was really excited to learn more. Welcome to That's So Chronic. You are a board-certified paediatric and adult allergist, immunologist. I always struggle with that word because I want to say immunologist, but anyway, immunologist and a lifestyle medicine physician. You are also a medical educator at the Ohio State University. But like your bio on your website says, you are so much more than that. You are also a mum to three wonderful children. You're a podcast host yourself. You are also Dr. Midwest America, which I am so excited to chat more about because I know nothing about this world. And you are also living with a diagnosis of Sjogren's disease, which we're going to chat more about today. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to talk with you today. Just so that we're all on the same page, if anybody is listening to this episode and they have got absolutely no idea what Sjogren's is, or they're looking at the spelling and they're like, wait, what? (laughs) How would you describe what this condition is to someone who's never heard of it before? Yes. So Sjogren's is an autoimmune condition. It uh, looks and is spelled like the name of a chair from Ikea. It is named after... (laughs) Yes, it's named after a Swedish uh, scientist and physician who first described it. And it is one of the most common but least talked about and least researched autoimmune conditions. We estimate that it affects upwards of maybe as many as 1 in 100 individuals, 90% of whom are women. And what I found incredibly humbling was what I learned to take my board examination, both as my pediatrics boards, which is discussed in um, internal medicine, and my allergy immunology boards, really was such a tiny fraction of what the actual lived experience of someone with Sjogren's is, that I didn't recognize it in myself until, in hindsight, many, many years of symptoms. I, you know, it was something that I brushed off for many years until the symptoms were to a point where I couldn't ignore them any longer. And so that really has fueled my passion for, one, educating my peers on what this condition looks like, how we evaluate for it, what you listen for when you're talking with patients. Yeah. And also to share that awareness publicly as well so that folks who maybe are getting the brush off from their healthcare team may know the right questions to ask, things to ask for, you know, look for uh, as they're on their own diagnostic odyssey and figuring out what might be causing their symptoms. And so you mentioned that it is an autoimmune condition. Mm-hmm. This is when the immune system it's mistakenly attacking the glands that produce saliva and tears. Is that correct? Correct, yes. So Sjogren's is kind of most known for tissue dryness that it causes from that Mm. attack. So maybe dry eyes that feel like they're sandy or gritty or may feel like allergic eyes because the reality is that dry eye many times actually will 
manifest sometimes is eye watering, which sounds very counterintuitive. Ah, interesting. Yeah. When the eyes and the glands that make the very moisturizing, nice tear film, when those are destroyed, the tears that are made to replace them are very watery. Mm-hmm. So sometimes then the body can kind of overcompensate and make more watery tears ah. because it doesn't have the actual kind of fatty tear component yeah. or the oily tear component that's supposed to be there. Dry mouth is another s- symptom that comes up quite often. And having dental issues as a result of that because dry mouth really affects the microbiome Mm -hmm. in our mouth, which can lead to increased cavities and other dental issues. What I see interestingly in the clinic, because I'm taking care of patients with allergy and sinus issues pretty often, are dryness in the nose and symptoms related to recurrent sinus infections. Mm -hmm. And then things we don't talk about as much because you know, there are things that are said yeah. hush hush, but vaginal dryness will fall in there as well. Yeah. But the reality is, you know, as, as as healthcare professionals, we are quizzed and kind of really schooled on the dryness aspects. But when you're talking to someone who has Sjogren's, absolutely the dryness interferes with our quality of life. But that's not what brings them to the office. Mm, it's the fatigue, yeah. it's body pain, it's brain fog, it's symptoms of dysautonomia, another long word, (laughs) but essentially those um, symptoms that mean that your body is actually having issues with communicating. The nervous system's having trouble communicating many times with our cardiovascular or heart and vessels. So you may end up dizzy spells or your heart racing or temperature fluctuations, digestion problems, all sorts of things that aren't necessarily the tissue dryness. Yeah. So where does your story of Sjogren's start? I'm wondering if diagnosis was the beginning or whether you had been noticing symptoms for quite a while that you then eventually went to seek a diagnosis. Yeah, so in hindsight, as I mentioned, I recall having symptoms that I now attribute either to Sjogren's itself or Mm -hmm. kind of what we term in medicine as the prodrome. So things that happened maybe before things were at a clinical diagnosis. So when we think about an autoimmune condition, the time course of how that may develop can evolve over time. Our lives are like a a, a really long movie and we kind of see our doctors in like little snippets, like little TikTok videos. And so, but I remember back to being in college, having lots of issues with foods that I no longer could digest well without getting excruciating abdominal pain. Mm -hmm. I had a few episodes in medical school of um, some issues with chest pain that was so severe that I thought I was having a heart attack. Turns out, like in hindsight, I think it was my esophagus Mm -hmm. having some issues. And then around the time I got pregnant with my first daughter, who is now seven and a half, I was no longer able to wear mascara or contacts without like, I would look like a raccoon (laughs) by like 10 (laughs) a.m. because I would be rubbing my eyes, it'd bother me, so I just quit wearing it. And for me, like, I know we'll talk about it later, but I, in college, was a a pageant girl. I liked getting dressed up. I liked wearing a little, not a lot of makeup, a little bit, but I really always like... I joked I never left the house without mascara. So for yeah. me to to consciously stop wearing it for a reason, like took took a little bit more than maybe the average person. Yes. Yeah. And then um, after I had my second daughter, Josephine, who's now almost five, my dental hygienist, when I was going for my routine cleaning, said, hey, Kara, your mouth looks really dry. And really it was in that moment that I kind of put the puzzle pieces together I had had some weird labs a few years back. I had had, uh, of course, these eye symptoms, now the mouth symptoms, and I was incredibly tired. And I also had this thought of like, oh, what about that back pain? Like I, I yeah. get some significant back stiffness. And it's it's different than like if you pull a muscle or your back yes, goes yeah. out. It's, it, it's like I sit on the floor, I play with my kids, and when I go to sit, stand up, I'm hunched over like an 80-year-old woman. Like yeah. <laughs> I can't stand up right away. And that resolved or pretty much vanished every time I was pregnant. Oh. And I was like, well, that's really odd. 
because most of my friends are complaining about back pain during pregnancy. Like this is opposite. And so it was kind of, you know, those little puzzle pieces, plus having that, that medical education and background that I was like, Ooh, I think we need to do some labs and get that checked out. So I kind of took a deep breath, kind of got my courage up, which sounds a little bit weird to say because I was going to see a friend and a colleague who was my primary care doc at the time, but I didn't want to be like that patient, right? That was like, you know, demanding something or, (laughs) yeah, like, and I think there is this tendency, especially I've talked with other female physicians who have autoimmune conditions. I think there's this tendency for us to like second guess ourselves too of like, oh, is this like, am I just overthinking things? Like I, you know, sometimes a little knowledge is, you know, is, is a dangerous yeah. thing, you know, kind of that saying. I'm sure people will be so fascinated to hear that even as a medical <laughs> doctor, you are also feeling those feelings of like, yeah, I guess, well, like anxious thoughts about going to yeah. chat to a doctor. Yeah. And, well, and her response, although I know it was very well-intentioned because I, I know her, right? Mm. Like I, I've talked with her. We've taught medical students together. She's a lovely human being with generally pretty good bedside manner, but her response was, oh, I'm sure it's nothing. I'm sure, you know, you're just tired. You're a mom, you know, you're, you're only your second year into your, you know, your, your attending practice kind of, I had, I had finally finished my, my, all, all the years of training, like two years prior. And, um, but she's like, yeah, but I guess we can get that lab work, especially, you know, if, if you, if you're really worried about it. And so she, she kind of like, brushed it off nicely, but brushed it off. And I hate to say it, but I feel incredibly lucky or fortunate that my labs were like totally off the wall because I don't know if I would have pursued further evaluation at that point had it been normal. Yeah, I think I would have like kind of continued to be an ostrich with my head in the sand, you know, just like (laughs) trying to ignore things, but it, it was, my antibodies were positive, which I now know is only the case in about 60% of patients. Oh, wow. So it's, it's actually not, it's a majority, but kind of just barely a majority that will have abnormal blood work. About 40% of patients will be what's termed seronegative. So normal blood work or kind of those situations where the doc's like, oh, it's normal. Yeah. Right. Dot, dot, dot. And I think, you know, from the patient's perspective, we know how that feels like a death by a million paper cuts yes, when you absolutely. hear that. Or do you think it could be stress? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so once you get the lab results back, what is the process then? Yeah. So, and, and I mean, here, this also shows in many ways my, my privilege of, you know, having kind of an in with the system, but my, my friend from training was on, uh, she's on faculty in the rheumatology department. The really neat thing about allergy immunology and rheumatology is that the basic science of what we're learning about the immune system, it's the same textbook. Mm-hmm. So I knew her from part of our training. We okay. did education sessions together, like, a, you know, a few years prior. So I said, hey, Alexa, my Sjogren's antibody is really positive. Will you see me as a patient? And she's like, of course put in a bunch of lab work, like follow-up lab lab work. She's like, you know, I suspect everything will be fine. We'll just check this lab work and we'll keep an eye on you. A lot of times with Sjogren's, we'll do kind of watchful waiting. And so I get like the 13 tubes of blood or whatever it was. I mean, it was like the whole rainbow of tubes or whatever. (laughs) All I can think about is like the lab bill. And I'm thankful that I have pretty good insurance, but um, as – I'm sure you may have heard that the healthcare system in the U.S. is like very dysfunctional. Yes. Uh, it, it's good, but dysfunctional. Yeah. So then she calls me back, though, and says, hey, uh, actually, we need to you need to like come back in. We need to talk about starting some meds because oh, okay. at that point, some of the markers were um, more concerning for higher risk disease. So some of the things that they will monitor patients for Sjogren's. Certainly your antibodies, looking for other antibodies that you may have heard of with other autoimmune conditions like an ANA or rheumatoid factor. 
But one in particular that is followed more closely is something called complement. It's an immune system protein that is created primarily by our liver. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, if you have a deficiency in it, it can, um, just born with a deficiency, it can increase your risk of infections, but also autoimmune conditions, Ah. which is just kind of a little uh, factoid. But if you have someone with an autoimmune condition and those levels are low, a lot of times it means that it's being used up because inflammation is high. Mm -hmm. So, and that's, in particular, um, one of the paths that's activated in Sjogren's. And so that level was quite low. And so we ended up starting some medication at that time, uh, which was hydroxychloroquine or Plaquenil. Okay. And it was kind of a waiting t- waiting game because it takes a good three plus months to see if it's going to be effective or not. Ah, and so what does that treatment, what is what does that target? How is that going to hopefully relieve yeah. some of your symptoms? So what's interesting about hydroxychloroquine or Plaquenil is it is an anti-malaria medication oh. that was used years and years ago. Now the mosquitoes and malaria are yeah. resistant to it, so <laughs> it's not a good anti-malarial. <laughs> but at some point along the way, what they realized was it actually was quite good at slowing down the progression of lupus and subsequently Sjogren's as well, which is essentially like a brother-sister condition. And it essentially adjusts or kind of modulates some of the markers on the surface of our immune system cells. The awesome thing about it is it doesn't make me particularly immune suppressed or immune compromised, which is you know something that's kind of think been front of mind for the last yeah. few years, especially. Generally, it's pretty well tolerated, so that's also a good thing. And it's safe and actually recommended to take it in pregnancy, which turned out to be a good thing for for me to think about and to know because we had hoped, you know, before this diagnosis to have another kiddo. And so that was one of the, you know, stresses and kind of things that I was grappling with, especially um, in those months after being diagnosed. I wasn't ready to have a kid at that yeah. point because I had a nine-month-old um, and a like four-year-old, yeah. but <laughs> but the hope of another kiddo was still there. Yeah. Um, so that, that weighed heavily. And how did you find the medication? Were you able to get relief? Yeah. So I was um, pretty fortunate that it, it did help. My complement levels came back up and things settled down. The one little hiccup, which wasn't quite so little, is I also really kind of seeing that there wasn't much between hydroxychloroquine or Plaquenil and then some of the what I would term kind of big gun medications for Sjogren's. There's a big gap kind of in the middle that we've seen better treatments come about for like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus that are kind of in the middle zone where they're effective, but they're not totally wiping out the immune system in certain aspects. And so there's not there's not anything there okay. in that zone for Sjogren's. So I was like, okay, what else can I do? Mm-hmm. There has to be like this perfect recipe where if I like eat right, yeah. and I exercise, and I sleep, and I deal with my stress, and I meditate, like it'll be this magic like recipe or potion to make it all go away. Because obviously I just wanted yeah. to be back to normal and feeling well. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. denial is like a – pretty strong emotion and part of the grieving process. Yeah. So I started taking a superfood supplement. It was in my green smoothie every day. I was getting like, you know, starting the day off right with some this pea protein based superfood smoothie. And it had some very good marketing too. <laughs> <laughs> and about eight weeks later, so this is like end of the summer, I was diagnosed in May and this was like maybe like early September. I started having fevers every day. Oh. I felt more tired than I had ever felt before. And about a week and a half in, at, at, at that point, I figured I'd caught something that my kids brought something home from the childcare center because that's a regular yep. thing around here. <laughs> <laughs> Continues to be a regular thing. And then um, I started getting itchy and I went to the bathroom and I noticed my urine was really dark. And that's when I was like, oh, four letter word. Yeah. Um, that's, that's not normal. And so it turns out my liver enzymes were through the roof. I had an acute hepatitis or inflammation of the liver 
And again, more tubes of blood, trying to figure out, did I have some sort of viral infection? Was there an autoimmune hepatitis, which can occur sometimes with Sjogren's? I think that was the the scariest possibility. Well, one of. The other was the potential for cancer. Yeah. And then I happened to mention about the supplement to my liver doctor, and I I obviously stopped it Mm. um, along with my... Plaquenil at the time, just to make sure, yeah. like clean slate. And I ended up with a biopsy of my liver. And the end result was that it was suggestive of injury from the supplement, kind of when all the pieces were put together. Wow. And we don't know, we don't know what ingredient. That's the unfortunate thing. Um, yeah. They're how kind of vitamins and supplements are like the safety of them in the US is not as tightly regulated as mm-hmm. like pharmaceutical medications. And yeah. so the reporting of these sorts of injuries, which actually occur quite often, it's about 20% of liver injuries will be related to vitamins or supplements. There's not as much oversight in recording that information, kind of understanding, you know, who may be at higher risk and so on. The good news is my liver is back to normal. I'm no longer itchy. Like there weren't signs of like autoimmune damage to my liver or like chronic damage. That was all good. But it was a really scary wake up call. And also kind of what pushed me to say, okay, this whole perfectionist stuff is like got to give too. Oh, wow. So what would the difference have been before receiving your diagnosis in your symptoms? And then when you had started the medication and, and a few months on, What were your symptoms looking like then? Yeah, so my fatigue was improving a decent amount. Mm -hmm. And my pain had improved somewhat too. Now, I will say I also had started a little, like a low dose of an antidepressant called duoxetine or Cymbalta, which is also used for pain associated with like fibromyalgia. So it has some like neuro kind of transmitter type effects. So I think that that probably helped as well. It also helped my anxiety that I was at the time unwilling yeah. to, uh, you know, acknowledge. <laughs> acknowledge. But after it was treated a little bit, it was like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah that was impacting me yeah. a whole lot more than I realized. I listened to a podcast interview where you spoke about your diagnosis journey and you referred to it like puzzle pieces. Yeah. And I'm really curious, how did you feel when I guess that final puzzle piece was in the puzzle and you understood what was going on. Like, how did that feel mentally? I mean, it was such a bag of emotions, right? Like, it was relief that I had a reason why I felt so crappy. But I also felt like the biggest idiot because, like, I do this for a living (laughs) to some degree, right? Like, I don't do all the autoimmune stuff, but, like, a decent amount. And there's a lot of overlap. And I would like to think I'm, like, a pretty insightful person. But as it came to, like just slowing down and taking stock of like my own situation there was like no awareness I think that's been an interesting like that's continued to be an ongoing discovery like this last few years too yeah it continues to like unfold the all the layers yeah oh my goodness a leaf blower has just started outside of my window (laughs) so apologies for that if you can hear it it's like 8 30 a.m on the dot they start their leaf blowers (laughs) I just listened to a podcast episode about it, actually, and I think America also has an issue with leaf blowers. (laughs) Yep. Yep. (laughs) So, sorry to interrupt. So, I'm wondering, did you know much about Sjogren's, and did you know anybody personally Mm. who also Mm. had this condition? So, I certainly had had a few patients that I recall seeing it on the diagnosis list, It's interesting. There's actually a patient that I saw back recently. Um, They like re, they came back for some allergy issues they'd been having. And I, I looked back at the note and I originally saw them prior to my diagnosis, like several months prior. And it's someone that I kind of know outside of the office a little bit too. And so I felt a little, like I was a little more able to be open with them and said, hey, you know, it's really interesting. I was diagnosed with Sjogren's a couple months after I saw you last. I don't think that I would have or did put as much emphasis on how much that may be impacting your allergies then as I now know that it does now. 
and I'm really glad you're back and we're taking care of this. And so that's made for kind of some, that was an interesting point of reflection with that particular person, especially. I think what I've learned, what I learned as a student, you know, so much of what you learn, sadly, especially in medicine, when there's so much to learn, is you learn things to pass the test. Yeah. (laughs) Right. I mean, that's kind of like, what's ingrained in us from childhood in modern education rather than what you're going to actually apply and use and think critically. But what you need to know for the test for Sjogren's is that it's a typically an older woman, Mm. postmenopausal woman. She is going to have a positive um, SSA antibody or SSB antibody. That's kind of the name of the autoantibodies or the blood test. Which we now know is only... Yep. Really, 60%. 60%. Yeah, that never comes up. And she is going to have some sort of complaints of either grittiness in her eyes. That was always the word grittiness or sand in her Mm -hmm. eyes. Or she'll have bad teeth. Like that will be in the question as well. Like those are the elements. Now, if it was a for, so I trained both as an internal medicine or an adult doc, but also as a pediatrician. It's like a combined program. So the pediatrics answer is what do you need to worry about because for the baby? Because if a mom who has Sjogren's and has that SSA antibody positive, that antibody crosses through the placenta over to baby and has the potential of creating something called congenital heart block. Essentially, it prevents the development or the correct development of the heart electrical system for baby. And so that's what you need to know as a pediatrician. Wow. So that 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 was the extent of what I knew about Sjogren's. That is so fascinating and really interesting. And I guess what an amazing opportunity in, in a terrible way. Like I really wish that you didn't have Sjogren's and this hadn't entered your life and yeah. we weren't even talking yeah, about it right? today. But like how <laughs> but, fascinating that you're able to bring your mm-hmm. lived experience now to some of your patients and also mm-hmm. some of the work and the research work that you do. It's interesting. There is this term that came up in one of the continuing education courses I've done over the last year. It was called a growth edge. And it's like that area of like where yes. you, you you need to learn. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a nicer way of putting it. <laughs> Before we carry on with the episode, I wanted to quickly jump in and say thanks for listening to this episode of That's So Chronic. If you're new around here, you might not know that it's kind of just me making everything happen behind the scenes. Because of that, every rating and review on Apple Podcasts, every click of the five-star button on Spotify, and especially those follows, do not go unnoticed. This all helps That's So Chronic reach more people around the world. So again, a big thank you for supporting. All right, back to the interview. I'm really interested in how you got into studying medicine. Is this something that you always knew that you wanted to do? From an early, early age, I remember, so um, I grew up in Illinois, kind of the not Chicago part of Illinois. Yeah. And when I was quite young, my mom was still working and my mom's mom, maternal grandma, watched me. Um, And this was probably the age of three, but I recall... Some of my early me- earliest memories are driving this 20-minute drive from my, where my parents lived to where my grandma lived so that my mom could drop me off. And part of that route was driving past the medical school wow. in our town. And I just – and that's where we saw the pediatrician. It was the pediatrician that took care of my mom and her five siblings. She's one of six kids. And he remembered my grandma. He remembered my – more so my grandma and the kids because yeah. her story was interesting in that she had one boy, then she had three girls, <laughs> and then she got pregnant again. And at about 34 weeks of pregnancy, she found out she was having twins. Oh, wow. <laughs> because this was back in, you know, the ni- mid-1960s. And so they didn't have ultrasounds yeah. that were available. And so it was discovered on an, on an x-ray. <laughs> Which is just funny. So anyway, you know, I had this like really great warm memories of my pediatrician. He taught medical students. I thought that was really cool. And I loved learning. I loved kind of, I was a curious little kid. I loved going to the local history museum and like 
going to animal hour and doing these things. And I think that love of learning always continued and was encouraged. And um, there was always this theme of wanting to like help other people too. And so that was a way that I, you know, of the jobs you kind of are introduced to as a child, I think that was kind of the epitome of bringing those two together. And so I fixated and gravitated to that pretty quickly. And then when you were moving through your training, what inspired you to move into the allergy space or the immunology space? Again, like little puzzle pieces or breadcrumbs along the way. I recall doing a a community-based intervention project with like the Boys and Girls Club teaching kids about asthma as like a second year student that I really was excited about. I also remember back even to my uh, my college, my favorite class in college was my immune immunology mm-hmm. class. So kind of the science of the immune system. And we got to go to a local uh, biotech um, company that actually produces many of the tests that we use yeah. as allergist immunologists. And I got to help design a test kit like for a summer cool. research project there, which was a lot of fun. So that was kind of the basic science. And I love the science of it. But I also at that point realized like I wanted to deal with humans yeah. and like actually apply to medical school at that point. So that was a little breadcrumb. Then there's a little breadcrumb in med school. And then it got to be like the very beginning of my third year of residency out of a four year program that I rotated through the allergy clinic oh. at our local children's hospital. And at the time, I was like thinking about doing like specializing in the lungs, which is pulmonary medicine. But as an adult doc, you also have to specialize in intensive care. Mm-hmm. And I, at, by that point, had realized I was not cut out for the intensive care yeah. unit. I didn't like staying up on call. Like that yeah. just didn't feel good to my body, like being up all night. And although like saving like acutely saving lives doing procedures like that was pretty sexy yeah. <laughs> for a while there that wore off very quickly yeah. so here i was in pediatric allergy clinic and i spent the first afternoon with dr dave stukas who would go on to very quickly become my mentor continues to be a mentor he's on twitter at allergy kids doc which is, he's really funny to follow but he took me under his wing and we saw patients with asthma, patients with allergic rhinitis or aller- like nose allergies, mm-hmm. food allergy, immune deficiencies, like across the, you know, across the spectrum of what we see in our field. And what I gravitated to was one, it was the science I loved. Two, I was pleasantly surprised that I actually found outpatient medicine in this area, like really exciting. Yeah. I had always thought outpatient medicine was pretty boring yeah. <laughs> previous to that. And I really, like, kind of selfishly, I loved hearing how grateful patients were when you helped them feel better. Like, it's hard to find a patient more grateful than than one of my patients who has chronic nasal polyps or these, like, non-cancerous growths in their nose that cause them not able to be able to breathe through through their nose. Mm -hmm. They can't smell. They can't taste. They get sinus infections all the time. If we can help improve that, like allow them to breathe, allow them to smell, like it's yeah. life changing. Absolutely. Like, that's so gratifying. And that was something that I did not hear ever from my yeah. patients in my primary care clinic yeah. when I was treating their blood pressure. Yeah. <laughs> it's a reality. Yeah. And so that was really, it was like, by the end of that first week, um, it was a four-week rotation. By the end of that first week, I went I went home to my husband at dinner and I said, this is what I'm going to do. Amazing. I love hearing people's journeys of how they got to their speciality and, and how that's all happened. So thank you so much for sharing. I also read that, you know, you are also a lifestyle medicine physician. And yeah. I had never heard yeah. of that before until I started researching you and I loved reading more about it. I'm currently, I've gone back to university and I'm studying public health at the moment. So this is definitely something that I'm really interested in. How did that eventuate? And especially in New Zealand and Australia, this is definitely like still quite new. Is that also the case in America? Yeah, I think it's only been around formally for I think six years in the US. So it's still quite new here as well. Essentially what I was looking for 
I had had garnered this nickname as the crunchy allergist after I finished my training. I did the end of our training, we have to do a presentation to the department that's kind of a culmination of your training, and it can be on whatever topic you choose. But what mm-hmm. I chose to do was to look at the science behind all of the alternative type treatments that my patients were asking about. Neti pots, essential oils, yoga, you know, yeah. these things that I wasn't sure, like, what did, what did we have science? What did the science say? Yeah. And so that, that curiosity in that area had been there. So then I looked to see, okay, where, how could I get more formal education or training in those areas? So there's kind of three main um, branches that are available. One is doing an integrative medicine fellowship, which is like a two-year program, quite well established, that will teach docs how to incorporate like um, Ayurveda, traditional Chinese medicine. Some may do some additional training in acupuncture related to that, using supplements, vitamins, and lifestyle. So it's a pretty all-encompassing program. It's also quite expensive and (laughs) time-consuming, you know, as you would expect. It's a lot to learn. I will say after my run-in with the liver stuff, (laughs) I was a little like (laughs) a little biased of just like, hey, okay, maybe that's a little bit more than I would like to bite off at that point in time. But also I, you know, reflected kind of my own concerns or biases related to that. Then um, I was also curious about functional medicine, which is also another newer area of training, similar financial investment that would be with integrative medicine. Both of those types of programs tend to run somewhere around twenty to $40,000, depending on the program you choose. And it required a pretty significant amount of travel to their mm-hmm. weekend seminars. And as I really started to dig in, I loved kind of the surface of what I read, but when I really started to dig in specifically to things that they were teaching in my own area of expertise or zone of genius, you know, kind of the, you know, that I had focused an extra two plus years on, the science didn't add up. Like they were promoting things that just didn't have science behind it. And so as I talked to other specialists that I respected and knew were up to date and things and forward thinking, um, and they were saying the same thing that, that just gave me enough pause to be like, Ooh, that's a lot of money and time like yeah. to invest in something I wasn't completely sold on. Mm-hmm. So then here comes lifestyle medicine, yeah. which is also a newer kid on the block. It really focuses in on how can we harness the power of our daily habits to help, you know, our help at, rather than to harm it. Yeah. And it's extremely kind of based in what is the literature that we have that's out there in regards to scientific studies. So the pillars of lifestyle medicine are nutrition, a whole food plant predominant diet is kind of what the literature would best support. And that's gonna be personalized based on someone's allergies or intolerance, certainly, um, and nutritional needs. Movement or exercise, really trying to aim for 150 minutes a week of moderate exercise as we're able. You know, there are, certain things that in certain circumstances where I say Rome wasn't built in the day and yeah. any movement is better than no movement. So. Exactly. And it will look different. You know, movement will look different. For Absolutely. So many different people. Yeah. I have, um, you obviously can't see it, but I have a little like little peddler underneath yeah. my desk. And sometimes that's what I get. Yeah. Sleep, incredibly important. Mm-hmm. Our management of stress our connections with other human beings, so those social relationships we have, and then minimizing our exposure to toxic substances. And the majority of the teaching thus far focuses on getting people to stop smoking and to really um, pull back on their alcohol intake. But what I'm actually really curious about and working on an upcoming talk for is what else or what other, you know, things should we be looking at to minimize our exposure to things in our environment that may have some toxic effects? Um, Because within the field of allergy and immunology, there has been a real kind of explosion in scientific literature to say things like our dishwasher detergent and Mm -hmm. some of the things in our soaps or toothpaste and may be at least um, in for people who are susceptible, these little chinks in the armor 
that are leading us towards increased rates of allergies, yeah. asthma, autoimmunity, all these sorts of things. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I'm deep in those social determinants of health at the moment. <laughs> and just like, yeah. it is so fascinating how so much of our environment or things, and, and granted, a lot of it isn't in, in our control. I totally respect yeah. that. Yeah, air pollution, especially. You can't, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so interesting. I guess, does this lead on to a lot of the work that you do as well? Becoming Immune Confident is the name of your podcast. And it's also a phrase, that comes up a lot with some of the work yeah. that you do around coaching and pops up a little bit on your website. Yeah. What does that phrase mean to you? And, yeah. and how did you get to that? It's it's taken a good three years to finally come to that, that phrase. I had kind of been like thinking, noodling, so to speak, on things like mulling things over for a long time. I love the word becoming because it shows that we are taking action. We're in the process of we, I am a huge fan of personal development. And I don't think I will ever, I don't think that work for me will ever be done. And it's not at all to say that I am not, I'm still working on this, right. But like really learning and, and accepting that I am perfect and whole exactly how I am. But also in holding that along with, I see a different me as future me. Yeah. And it's okay to want to work towards that. Yeah. So that's the becoming. Immune obviously has the immune system, allergies, autoimmunity, but it also signals resistance and resilience. Our immune system is what allows us to heal. So inflammation, when we think about inflammation in our body, it is our body's response to infection, to injury, and then to insult, which are things like allergies, autoimmunity, and then some metabolism changes. But really the goal of inflammation is to get things back to homeostasis or that status quo. Yeah. It's when we have too much of it or it sticks along around too long, that's when it becomes a problem. Yeah. It in and itself isn't an issue. It's it's when it overstays its welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Like when, you know, my parents come to visit and it's been more than like three days, right? Like I love them, but, yeah, right? And then confident, you know, I think there are so many messages, especially that we hear as women in the world from the time we're very little, you know, through to the present, that we should look outside of ourselves for answers, that we should... Um, that we're not good enough, you know, that we should be smaller than what we are. We should be quieter. And it's also, so part of it is standing up, feeling confident in our own shoes that we can navigate this dysfunctional healthcare system, the wellness system, which is totally unregulated and everyone's selling you stuff too. And to learn to listen to our own internal voice, learn how to be a conscientious consumer. Yeah. All of those things. So that's what we settled on. It was the last (laughs) (laughs) rebranding. Going back to being somebody who is living with Sjogren's, how does life look for you now? How are you feeling your medication? Is it working? How does life look now? Generally, pretty good. Uh, I will say this last few days have been a little rough. My uh, youngest, so I uh, fast forward, I now have a a third kiddo. I had a successful healthy pregnancy with Oliver, who's now about 18 months old. And now he's the one who is bringing home all the bugs from daycare. Um, But viral illnesses do tend to be a source for flare-ups. So I've noticed some increase in that back pain again, which generally is pretty quiet. But overall, I think one of the big things that has changed substantially is my ability to say no. Mm -hmm. I'm not perfect, but I've I've learned to set boundaries to... where I didn't know how to do that at all before. And so I think that has been huge. In particular, I know for me, sleep is like paramount. So I really do my absolute best to be in bed, ready to turn off the light by 8.30 at night because we're up pretty early in the morning or we'll have some sort of wake up overnight. So that is um, something I found really important. 
I also have noticed that if I let my, what I now know to be kind of irritable bowel type symptoms kind of, and I kind of know like which foods tend to lend me to have more issues, that that's kind of a sign for me that I can kind of track symptoms and say, oh, I've had too much in the simple carbs and the cheese this week. We need to get some more fiber (laughs) on board, some more veggies. And because that um, seems to track with my my symptoms like my fatigue and my um my back pain and, and mm-hmm. so forth and brain fog type symptoms as well and the other thing you know that's been much more recent and i think has been in a lot of discussions with the pandemic is i was noticing that i was using wine more than mm-hmm. ideal to help with some of the anxiety initially from the pandemic then yeah. just attributed you know to parenting and being, you know, busy and working in a business and all these things. And so, you know, it's really been within the last few weeks that I've decided, you know, hey, it's just not serving me anymore. And I'm really excited to see how that looks longer term and uh, trying to approach that with some curiosity and excitement as opposed to kind of that you know, uh, and it's okay to feel like some sadness and like mourning some of that, but yeah, but leaning more into the curiosity and the possibilities that uh, that that will provide me. And my sleep has gotten so much better. Like the last few weeks, it's it's really amazing, and my anxiety has calmed down tremendously. Really, the the more I started reading and learning about the impact of alcohol, not only on gut health, we know like it's, yeah. it's, it's terrible for our gut, but that it also is really, it, it helps you for that, those moments after you drink it, right? It helps yeah. calm the anxiety, but it comes back to bite you in the rear end yeah. tenfold. Absolutely. And it totally messes with your sleep. So yeah. good riddance. <laughs> Okay, so my final question. There are pageants for doctors. I had no idea. And congratulations. Congratulations on Dr. America runner up. That is very exciting in 2022. Well done. Congratulations. So tell me everything. So in college, I was responsible for paying my way. Like my parents kind of always told me, like, this is, it's your education, it's on your dime. And I knew I wanted to go to medical school. I knew I was going to have a significant amount in loans. And so yeah. I loved getting dressed up. I played the flute and I was like, hey, you know, and I liked public speaking. I was on like the speech team, forensics team um, in high school. And I was like, oh, I totally can do that. Yeah. So in college, I I did a few pageants and competed for Miss Illinois, which was my home state on two occasions. I never like placed terribly high, but I got like the community service and, you know, like the academic type of words. And I earned several thousand dollars in scholarship money, um, which was really fun. And so when I turned like 21, 22, went off to medical school, kind of hung up my heels and stuff and thought, okay, that chapter of my life is closed. It was a lot of fun. And so it was probably about two years ago that I saw a colleague that I had befriended through social media announce that she was Dr. Idaho. And I was like, time out. What is this? I need to know more. So yeah. like this like little, you know, not little girl, but this, you know, part of me that had been asleep for quite some time yeah. um, was like, and had at the time, Oliver was probably like four or six months old. Like he was little and I still yeah. like totally was, and I still am quite a few pounds up from pre-baby and that's totally okay. But yeah. at the time I was less okay with it. Anyways, <laughs> so I was like, I need to learn about this. And so she shared what the Dr. America pageant was about, how it worked. And what I what really resonated with me is a lot of the heart behind it are the same pillars that drew me to the Miss America system as a teenager. It's really focusing on service, scholarship, style, you know, these aspects that aren't uh, necessarily getting up on stage in a bathing suit. It's really using that crown as a way to bring attention to a cause that you feel passionate about and using that as a platform to really spread the word. And so I love bringing visibility to invisible illnesses 
And uh, my line is, I am able to show people that showgrins really can sparkle and yeah. have a lot of fun. My girls think it's the coolest. Yeah. My husband and I kind of laugh a little bit about it, but <laughs> I think he enjoys, I don't think he enjoys like when he has to wear a tux, but um, yeah. the suits he's okay with. But it really has gotten me more involved in my local community, which I am, mm-hmm. I've been here for about 13 years, but in training, you don't really get out much. And so getting more involved in um, some of the philanthropic activities going around uh, my community and state, and then also through social media, able to, yeah. you know, spread the word. Next week, I'm two weeks from now, I'm giving a talk um, to the Canadian Sjogren's Foundation. And so it's exciting to be able to leverage that. And so this fall, I'll be competing for the title of Dr. America. And so it's through an interview, like a recorded video introduction, kind of explaining who I am, what I'm about. Um, I do get to wear a gown, an evening look. doesn't necessarily have to be a gown. I love wearing Mm -hmm. a gown. And I did recently... After all these years, I did finally get actual pageant headshots. So last year I did a yeah. selfie in my front yard. Yeah. Actually, with, with a little filter turned out well. But for my 39th birthday to myself, there was a kind of somewhat famous pageant photographer who came to Columbus, Ohio. And I said, you know what? Yeah. This is my birthday present to myself. So I love that. It's fun. Oh my goodness. Well, all the best. You'll definitely have Thank to keep you. everyone updated on your social media so we can see course, how you get on. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your story, all the different elements of your story with me today. I'll make sure to pop links so that people can follow you and they can find Thank out you. more in the show notes but yeah all the best thank you so much thank you so much i'm so glad we were able to connect across the many thousands of miles yes uh, and time zones and who knows one of these days we may exactly cross in real life i would love that thank you take care and that was another episode of That's So Chronic. Thank you so much for listening. Again, like I said in the interview, I'll make sure to pop all of the information that we talked about in the show notes. But feel free to reach out over on Instagram if you can't find something. If you would like a little bit more That's So Chronic in your life, I have a monthly newsletter over on Substack and you can also find me on TikTok. It's super easy. I'm just at That's So Chronic everywhere. I hope you're doing well and I'll see you next week.